Before I get into the show, I'd like to thank our sponsor, NPR. NPR is not your typical media partner. From NPR News Now and Smart Speakers to How I Built This Live on Stage, NPR is where audiences turn for non-commercial, unbiased journalism. Stay tuned to find out how NPR sponsorship drives impact for brands. Hello and welcome to Digiday Live, our podcast where we bring you the best sessions from our many summits around the world. I'm Aditi Sangul. The Guardian has made strides in driving its consumer revenue over the last two years. It now has 800,000 paying members that account for 12% of the publisher's total revenue, and that's from 180 different countries. Listen to Anna Bateson. She's the chief customer officer at The Guardian, and she spoke at our publishing summit in Europe. She says contributions are split into a third from the UK, a third from the US, and a third from the rest of the world. Two more years worth of data can help it understand how to drive more growth. Listen in. So first of all, um, can you just tell us a little bit about when you started, because um, your role was a, a new one, Chief Customer Officer, when you joined last year. Um, can you just sort of talk to us about what that meant, what that entailed, um, and the expectations when you came in? Um, so I was already at The Guardian. Um, I was uh, doing a slightly different role. I was looking after our um, relationships with platforms and partnerships generally. Um, and then... Um, Uh, uh, my predecessor left the company, actually, um, to go off and, and work for Harry Potter, so basically be a wizard. But, um, uh, and that they, uh, at that point, um, The Guardian took the opportunity to bring together various functions and sort of create this new title, uh, Chief Customer Officer, um, which, uh, personally, I find slightly sort of awkward and clunky and is, and is odd because we actually don't think of our readers as customers, Um, we actually think of them as supporters, but chief supporter officer is just a sort of ghastly, kind of even more ghastly title. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was a very deliberate thing, I think, for the organisation to try and get people, A, to sort of explicitly put the reader at the heart of everything we do, and then even more slightly uncomfortably try and make us think about that reader as being somebody who pays us money. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was, it was a sort of deliberate thing to try and get the organisation, I think, to sort of... Uh, pivot both sort of culturally and sort of um, organizationally. Mm. Can you talk us a little bit through the journey? Because you've gone to it's around 800,000 now, isn't it, paying contributors? Yes. Split across the US and the UK. Actually, the whole world. Oh, so the whole world, okay. People are, now people are now supporting us in 180 countries. Right. But the majority is from UK and US, would you say? Was it? I think it's about a third, a third, a third. It's a third the UK, um, a third US, and then a third the rest of the world. Okay. Well, can you tell us a little bit about what the key, maybe the pivotal moments were in your journey that you thought sort of, you, you felt you'd made a real breakthrough yeah. in how you approached it? Um, so the Guardian had had a members scheme, actually, for quite a long time. I think it launched back in 2014. And it came out of um, a, a feeling and a sort of set of insights around the reader's relationship with um, uh, the brand and, and obviously had the relationship they had had with the newspaper. And so there was this sense that there was a place for a member scheme, which at that point I think everyone thought of as sort of like a loyalty program. It's like the Guardian's version of a loyalty program. And so there, there had been this member scheme, which at that point was very much built on events, this idea of getting close to journalism. At one point, um, we were actually going to buy a building um, uh, in King's Cross, and I don't know if, if anyone's been to King's Cross, it's this sort of extraordinary bit of kind of, you know, uh, urban regeneration, and, the, and there was going to be this amazing building there, which was an old sort of, you know, 
know, kind of goods shed or something. And I think it was actually going to be a physical space, so just like a sort of members club in a way. Um, but the reality of that is that there are people who want to be a member of, of a, an organisation like The Guardian, and there are people who want to go to events. There just aren't very many of them. And it tends to be incredibly geographically bounded. You know, inevitably, if, if you're about to invest in a building, it's going to be people who live in London mm. and probably people who live in North London. Um, and so your ability to scale that to any degree is, is just very, very challenged. And so the economics of it are just not very good. Um, and so I think there was, there was a sort of um, a realisation that that was never going to provide the revenue growth that I think everyone's looking for to kind of, you know, see, you know, compensate essentially for declines in print. Um, and what happened was it was um, a sort of small cross-functional team that came from editorial, digital, so product, and kind of um, commercial, marketing, etc., to come together. And that was interesting because I think, I'm sure like lots of publishers, The Guardian traditionally had been really siloed and lots of groups of people that just never talked to each other and didn't really know what each other did. Mm. So this was a very, again, sort of deliberate, put people together and put editorial in with product and with commercial um, and, and task them with figuring out um, essentially, is there a way that we could ask our readers to give us more money in a way that felt kind of genuine and, and made sense? And so, um, so I think it was this cross-functional group who really turned to the relationship with the reader and thought, well, we must listen to the reader, we must talk to the readers, and then was set up in a way where it was no one knew what the answer was, so it was like experiments. So it was just basically... And again, that's culturally very unfamiliar, I think, for certainly for The Guardian, probably for publishers, don't have this sort of iterate, launch, iterate, launch, iterate, experiment kind of um, culture. And really what that happened then was this idea of perhaps if we embed and ask in the sort of editorial kind of um, environment, so it feels like it's coming from editorial, not coming from a sort of other bit of the business, and you give it enough space to tell the story, mm. and you listen to the things that readers find compelling of why they should give a kind of, you know, a sort of a, a news organisation money, um, then gradually you begin to unlock a, a sort of route to people saying, I do want to contribute to this, I care about it, I do think I should be paying for it. Um, I've, you know, this idea that, that just because it was available for free, you could never persuade people that it was something that they valued and that they would want to pay for, I think has just, is, a, is essentially something that has now been, um, uh, sort of, you know, proved wrong. Um, and then it was really about, A, finding the most compelling messages that resonate with people, and B, then reducing as much friction as possible in how you can actually pay, mm -hmm. um, which is still something we need to work on. Mm -hmm. What about editorially? Have you found there have been specific editorial things that have helped drive conversions? Um, so, so the editorial sort of side of this, I think, is, is fascinating. So initially, I think there was a lot of scepticism um, mm -hmm. in the organisation from editorial and from other places. Some people saw it as, as though we were begging um, rather than something to be proud of. Um, over time, I think editorial have got more and more sort of convinced that this is actually something that's interesting and innovative and that they can be proud of. And then the, and then the fascinating thing has been looking at the data of, of actually what it is that persuades people to give. Now, it's slightly flawed, the data, because it's sort of, it's kind of, it's sort of the last click in a way. So, so understanding the journey that gets you to that point, is, there's still work to do on it. But essentially... Unlike, I think, subscriptions, where it's really obviously very much based on engagement and your relationship with um, the brand and, and your frequency and you know, um, your regularity, 
This seems to be much more based on um, the emotion and the, what you feel about when you're reading. Um, and so uh, the context, I think, it becomes very important. So what we see is that certain types of journalism tend to convert and drive um, uh, donations much more than others. Mm. And, and some of that's kind of predictable in a way. So very big investigations that feel very sort of distinctive, um, they obviously kind of give big spikes big sort of very emotional political moments, so Brexit, I mean Trump obviously, but you know Brexit particularly always provoke lots of giving. Um, but then surprising things, so the environment is incredibly consistently, any stories about environment, climate change, etc., you know, people give. Um, and that I think is partly to do as well with one of the things that's really interesting about contributions is it allows you to... Um, really sort of, I mean, extract is a horrible word, but extract value from the readership around the world. So whereas advertising tends to be very bounded by your national borders and sort of, you know, sort of your ability to sell within those countries, um, this actually does unlock anybody reading anywhere around the world. And so the environment is a story that really resonates with audiences all around the world. And then surprising things like um, the Thai cave story, um, which we didn't expect because obviously that was a story that everyone was writing about. But um, partly I think it was because it was such a sort of emotional story that people were, were gripped and therefore very much sort of kind of motivated to give. But also I think because in a sort of very febrile environment where there were lots of rumours and there was lots of sort of kind of internet sort of speculation about what was going on, I think um, our blogs and our journalism became seen as somewhere which was really trustworthy and people then gave, saying that they really sort of appreciated the sort of, you know, the sort of sense of uh, trust and sort of fact that they, they thought they found there. Mm. Can you share any figures, if I remember off the top of your head, how many conversions there were from... Um, the Thai story spe specifically? No, I mean, I, but it was sort of, I mean, multiple percentages more than, than you know, you would normally see. Yeah. So if you, you have a, a steady level of giving, really, sort of, of just sort of from asks that are embedded on stories kind of on any weekly basis, and then you see these just really high spikes mm -hmm. um, where it's sort of, you know, double, triple levels of giving driven by particular stories. And are those one-off donations or are they memberships? Are you able to sort of give a bit of a, a, so it, of a split? It, so... So, it so usually it's um, it's pretty evenly split at the moment. Um, so uh, and and then it's often kind of um, uh, culturally sort of distinctive. Mm -hmm. So in the states, for instance, they really like one-off donations. Mm -hmm. They're they're really used to it. They actually they're kind of very familiar with giving to media organisations. Uh, whereas elsewhere, they're much they actually sort of I think this idea of signing up for a sort of regular donation is sort of much more akin to membership. Mm -hmm. And sort of the UK and Australia are much sort of more kind of comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be sort of evenly kind of split. I think that sort of in, in, in the kind of user testing we've done, often people have different... Some people just like to have control. So tw about 20% of people will give again. Mm -hmm. So it's not that it's like a one-off or I, I'll do it sort of on a regular basis. It's more some people just like the sort of, you know, I'm giving when I want to give, and other people like this idea of it's just a regular piece of support. 20% mm, in the UK, was that? No, sort of 20% um, uh, around the world of people okay. who have made a one-off contribution will then give again. Yeah. Um, what's your plan now in terms of growth and, and obviously sort of making sure that that recurring revenue um, figure sort yeah, of grows. Is, is stable and grows? Absolutely. What, what do you have? Um, so I think uh, I, I sort of feel that in a way we've come to the end of the first period of kind of almost like experimentation and proving out that contributions is something that can be a consistent sort of um, revenue stream. I think, as I say, at the beginning, there was a lot of scepticism about it, and then there was a feeling of, well, would it just run out? You know, mm -hmm. people would stop wanting to give. 
But I think now that we're, we're fairly confident that it's, it's, that it's a sort of, it's a revenue stream that we can believe in. It's currently about 12% of our overall revenue. Um, and I think it will grow. I'm not sure it's going to grow sort of, you know, to, I mean, I don't think it will grow above 20%, but I think it, it can grow. I think it can grow by, A, just improving sort of payment and reducing friction. There's still too much friction. That's a real problem, particularly on mobile. I think it can grow by understanding um, local variation, and there is local variation, even though I think the wonder of this, in a way, is that it's a global product or solution, which is unfamiliar, I think, for publishers who tend to think much more sort of locally, I, I think. Um, so it's wonderful that it's a global thing, but I also think that now understanding local variation around how they want to give the kind of product, the price, and sort of, uh, you know, the amounts, I think that will kind of yield um, uh, sort of, you know, kind of future sort of kind of return. Um, and then I really think, for us, it's now building a sort of set of complementary products which are really about subscriptions, but not subscriptions to content, but subscriptions to experiences, which is really un sort of tapping into the sort of same desire to support us, but giving people a slightly more kind of transactional value kind of exchange by sort of, uh, by sort of buying into something that's a premium experience rather than just making a contribution. Mm, can you give an example of what that looks like? Yes, yeah, so, so we've done a lot of work with, um, with our app, where we realized that, that our app had our most engaged um, readers, um, and yet, because we weren't really monetizing them very effectively from an advertising perspective, um, we, they, they were our least sort of valuable readers in a way. I mean, most valuable in some ways, but least sort of, you know, kind of um, rewarding in, in revenue terms. Mm -hmm. And so we created a premium tier, and the premium tier has some sort of functionality in it. It gives you different dimensions of ways of discovering content. It's ad-free, it has sort of various other things, and we'll put more kind of functionality into it. But it, there's no differentiation in content. So it's basically feature-based, experience-based. Um, and, um, and that's actually been incredibly successful in sort of persuading people who weren't giving us money to now give us money. And, and our message to them is very much still this emotional support the Guardian, you can support the Guardian, but then we give them some sense of their buying into something that makes their money a bit worthwhile. And I think that we now feel confident that there is a, there is a route where you can create experiences, sort of premium experiences that people will give you money for. You don't have to just gate your content. A quick break here. NPR listeners expect an authentic, unintrusive message from brands. It may be different, but it works. Listeners find NPR 21% more engaging than traditional radio content. To learn more about how sponsorship opportunities across NPR platforms can perform for your brand, visit npr.org slash forbrands. Now, back to the episode. And I remember, because I think you've got three or four tiers, is that right? Yes, yeah, so we're simplifying it. We, we okay. have had various... Yes, it's been rather complicated, but it's try, we're trying to simplify it now. Okay, because I remember at, at the start, um, I think even when it was around sort of 500,000, so it was still quite a lot of, yeah. um, of contributions and, and memberships, but I remember um, the bulk of those, I think, was on the, the lower, the £5 yes. tier, and obviously the plan was to sort of grow, and, you know, as you're sort of talking about growing the higher tiers, like, how far are you, you know, what progress have you made? I think that was sort of a year ago, like, can you just give a bit of an idea of what you're doing um, yes. Um, so, well, so, so one task has been just to simplify it. Um, and so I think we had, when we first launched, we had multiple tiers. And, then, and, and we also had a very specific membership proposition, which is you were buying into something and we gave you benefits in return. Um, we then took a decision sort of a year or so ago, which would, we would turn that into contributions rather than membership. 
And, and that's basically, then you don't have to pay VAT on it, so you get 20% more money, but then you also don't give benefits in return. So you can, you can send emails to people, you can talk to them, you can have that sort of ongoing dialogue, but we don't give you a gift. Mm -hmm. um, and that was based basically on feedback that people didn't really want the gift, and they didn't really want to feel that they were a member. They wanted to feel they were supporting and they were part of something, but not the membership felt a bit sort of onerous for people beyond a kind of core group. Mm. Um, and so when we did that, we began to sort of look at kind of amounts and try and get people to kind of sort of give more. Um, uh, and that, again, that, that's, sort of weird, that's sort of a work in progress. And, and you see kind of quite considerable variation by country. So Australia, for instance, will give much more than the UK. And Scandinavia are very generous. You know, and we think that that's probably just to do with GDP and sort of, you know, kind of individual wealth. Mm -hmm. But there is interesting... Maybe we're just tight. Yeah, we, yeah there is that too. Um, but there is interesting sort of, I think, variation about what, what people choose from amounts, etc. Um, uh, and then there's also this idea of if you come in by giving one off, can we then go back to you and ask you to give more or ask you to sign up for sort of more regular? So, so there are lots of initiatives basically to get people into more regular giving patterns and then also encourage them to give more over the sort of lifetime of, of their relationship with us. And then, well, so well, that's been sort of in a way simplified. We've then also launched, we've just launched um, a patron scheme, which is really meant to unlock a higher level of giving for people who basically sort of for sort of you know wealthier people who can't quite buy their own newspaper but want to be part in you know of our sustainability mm, okay just going back again I, are there any things that you learned didn't work or that you sort of you if you went back you would probably change because now you've learned um what works and what doesn't um, oh my God! I, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure we'd change. I mean, I think that it now all looks sort of quite, sort of, you know, um, sort of sensible and strategic. And I don't think it was like that at all. Um, I think there was very much this um, lots of mistakes along the way, um, and lots of things. I mean, I mean, you know, too many to sort of essentially where we've got to is only the result of a series of endless experiments, endless experiments around sort of language around design around sort of amounts sort of propositions etc and lots of essentially failures along the way um, we thought at some point that if you customized the language to the kind of type of journalism that you know um, it appeared in that that would yield higher conversions didn't um, we thought if you customized language to your country so it was much more specifically Australian coming from Australian that would sort of uh, give more conversions no um, so so in in a way, um, I think that the, the big thing for us was more this ability to experiment and discard, you know, have hypotheses and then discard them along the way, rather than what we, what we did wrong, because we did so many things wrong. Mm. Um, I think that there are, I think I would have invested more in um, payment options. I mean, it sounds so boring, but, but I still think we're much too complicated to give on mobile. I mean, I think this is true for everybody. Conversions on mobile are, are so tiny in comparison to desktop, and yet so much of our traffic is now on mobile, and so many of the kind of moments where people actually do want to give or kind of, you know, have, your, have their interaction with you. And so I think I would have done Apple Pay implementation much earlier in the sort of, you know, um, in the process. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think I would change is inevitably, because we've been sort of... The, the, the downside of that sort of iterative kind of discover it along the way is you tend to build things which are sort of built on top of each other and cobbled together with bits of string. And it's really difficult to then pause and sort of essentially rebuild your platform as a sort of, you know, kind of best-in-class, sort of fit-for-purpose, sort of, um, you know, kind of um, foundation. And I think I would, I would 
take the time to do that um, rather than this sort of sense of, you, you know, you're constantly kind of, you know, building on things and building on things. And, and that means that you end up having something that's more cumbersome. And at some point, you've got to fix that. Mm-hmm. What about um, churn? How are you looking at that intensively? How are your churn rates? Is that something that you're focused on? So, so I think like many people, um, having been through this kind of sort of wave of acquisition and sort of, you know, obsession about kind of top line acquisition, now we're having to think sort of very seriously about churn. Um, we have a sort of a whole series of different products and they all have different sort of churn rates and they all have their own sort of, you know, kind of um, set of behaviours. And we don't really understand yet quite how they all interrelate to each other. So that's one piece of work. Membership has very low churn. And so um, we've realized that that's a very special kind of, you know, thing. And so we really need to look after our members. Um, And so there's a lot of investment and time going into what the right way of thinking about that is Mm -hmm. and how you can look after them, particularly as for many of them, you know, and particularly post-GDPR, lots of people don't necessarily want to hear from you the whole time, and so how you kind of keep that conversation going. Um, but yes, I think as we go forward, um, this idea of, 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 of retention really being the dialogue and your way of listening and having a conversation with your most kind of precious readers is only going to become more important and, and have more investment, really. Just to go back a little bit to the editorial stuff, because I um, found that really interesting. Um, do you find, um, well, what are the differences, I guess, between, uh, say, the US, the UK, Australia, an example, in terms of what kind of stories sort of trigger that emotional response that you feel then sort of is so successful in converting to memberships? Um, so, so some things are, I mean, are sort of global, particularly environment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but some things then, obviously, so for instance, in the States... We did two um, sort of more specific fundraising campaigns, sort of slightly sort of Kickstarter-y campaigns. One was around public land, um, This Land is Your Land, which is obviously a very specific kind of US issue. Um, And there, that was incredibly successful at raising money because it was just a subject that people cared very much about and no one was writing about. So that was very much sort of, if you you can help us with some money, we will write about this and we will keep it front of mind. And when we researched with people afterwards, it was interesting because many people gave, not only because they thought, (laughs) actually, often they said, I don't want to read about it, but I just want to make sure that other people read about it. So there was this sense of it being a sort of, you know, this is a kind of a sort of important public issue that I want to make sure it's kind of being written about. And the other one, of course, is um, uh, gun crime, which is obviously very specific to the States. And again, we launched a, cam- we launched a campaign to help keep sort of writing about sort of um, gun crime and gun deaths sort of very kind of visible within the, the US kind of site and edition. And, and that, that led to something very interesting, which is because we had this campaign... Um, uh, when the Parkland shooting happened, um, uh, we were able to embed the campaign into um, the blog, the the live blog that we were running at the time, um, which obviously had enormous amounts of traffic um, and actually generated enormous amounts of giving because people clearly felt very emotional and kind of angry about it. And that was interesting to me because that's exactly the time when advertising falls away. So whenever you have sort of difficult stories, hard stories, you know, because increasingly people are kind of, you know, blacklisting certain words and they don't want to peer around hard news, you know, you just... So you have these incredible traffic spikes around really quite emotional stories, but no advertising because the advertisers don't want to be near it. And, and this then, so we had this... So suddenly we saw this kind of great contribution spike driven on the back of, of, of the Parkland shooting kind of journalism... 
And, and, and we, were, we were nervous about that because there's a sort of level of appropriateness, like, is it okay? But because it was bounded up in this specific ask around keeping people, you know, keeping guns sort of reporting um, visible and sort of kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of on, essentially on the front page, it felt okay and actually people did give. So that was a very interesting... Australia, it's a very much environment... Oh, no, but Australia is interesting because we saw an enormous spike in giving when the Fairfax deal was um, announced, nine taking over Fairfax. And essentially, there was a flood of people who really felt it was important to give to um, independent media. And this idea of media becoming increasingly absorbed by big business or by other companies, and this, this, the importance of an independent voice, um, that, that, and that continues, actually, to drive considerable amounts of, of donations. I'm running out of time. I have so much more I want to ask you. Um, I should allow a few questions as well, but just very quickly... Um, there was an interesting point you made about the hard news. Um, yeah. Do you think that in future, now you've, you've done that campaign and you've sort of seen that it was successful, is that going to be a focus, um, sort of ramping things up on the contribution side when there's a sort of typically kind of hard, hard yeah. news story that you know you anticipate advertisers won't really want to be part um, I, I, I hope so. I think, um, I think it's a really important sort of, in that sense of, if, if everybody's trying to be trying to find ways of diversifying their revenue, this idea that that, that there are moments when advertising is by far the best route to, to, to monetization and to realizing the value around journalism, and then there are times when if you, if if sort of contributions can unlock that value, then I think that's incredibly important. I do think there is a sort of um, it has to be done in the right way, mm -hmm. and it can't be crass, and it can't seem inappropriate, and we have a lot of debates about that. Um, and and there's, there's a difference of opinion about what is and what isn't appropriate. So I think that's going to be a sort of gentle exploration. But yes, I think it's actually a really... I, I think it's a really important strategic part of our future, mm -hmm. that ability to realise the value from, from news that is clearly amazingly important and engaging, but, but, but advertisers are just sort of frightened of. Mm. Just very, very quickly, promise last thing. Um, we've been talking a lot this uh, last couple of days about the challenges around um, driving young subscribers, yeah. um, especially for sort of traditional um, newspaper titles like some of the people who have been here. Um, what's your average demographic of, of uh, you know, paying? Yes. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's younger than people who subscribe, certainly to the newspaper, mm. um, but not still, I think it's definitely not the solution to, you know, unlocking young people giving. Mm -hmm. um, but, but actually, I think that's more about types of stories. So, so definitely the environment, I think, is a place where it's clearly very resonant for, for younger audiences. Mm. It, it networks up a global audience um, of, you know, um, of people who are all interested in the same thing. And I think that they are then more likely to give if you can find the right sort of way of asking for sort of, you know, um, essentially asking for kind of money within the context of something that they really care about. And something that they also think this... this um, this desire to share important stories to keep them sort of, you know, to keep them sort of um, current and sort of, I think that's one of the places where you can unlock this, this sense of, of connection to identity, but I also care about this story and I care about this story being really widely read. And one of the reasons it can be widely read is it's not behind a paywall and therefore, you know, I understand that there's a value exchange on the back of it. Okay. The other thing that's just interesting on younger audiences is we just relaunched our weekly magazine, mm -hmm. which was kind of sort of... Um, which was, uh, it has a sort of global subscriber base who are older, mm -hmm. and they tend to be, I think, expats who are looking for some way of accessing sort of, you know, kind of UK news. 
And so far, with the younger, and it's now, it's beautiful, it's magazine, that is driving much, much, much younger, and which, which I am very curious about. I think it's too early to make grand statements about it. But I do think, funnily enough, I think print still has relevance to younger people if it's done in the right way, mm -hmm. but just possibly not on a daily basis. I think this idea of something that's weekly that you know, allows you to sort of you know, reflect and kind of is sort of indulgent actually can deliver something that, that has resonance with younger audiences. Any quick questions? We have one here. Are you monetizing on podcasts? We are, yes. Um, so, but, but we're monetizing on podcasts basically through advertising. Um, however, uh, we are looking to find ways of embedding. It's one of the things we haven't done very well actually yet, is finding ways of sort of um, um, getting contribution asks to travel off platform. And so podcasts is obviously one of those, video is the other. Um, so podcasts, I think, are quite kind of... Um, sort of easy in a way, because it's sort of much more like radio. You can embed the ask. It can come from the, from the journalist, from the presenter. It's quite a sort of, I think, fluid and sort of comfortable way of talking about it. Um, exactly how you collect the money is a sort of, you know, that's a kind of interesting challenge, which we haven't quite worked out. Video I'm really interested about, because increasingly our videos are doing really well within YouTube, but off-platform, and we have no at the moment, effective return path, and we have no real way of, of unlocking contributions within videos. So I'm curious about that, and we, I think we want to do experimentation with that. Interesting. Okay. I'm afraid we're out of time. Oh, is there, oh there's one, oh, right, one more. <laughs> uh, just pretty quick. Uh, how do you use your email newsletters for both acquisition and retention? Uh, well, very much for retention. Um, uh, but we do also um, we do also use particularly from editorial um, we use email as ways of driving sort of um, uh, you're normally the way that we're doing it at the moment is somebody will write about a particularly sort of um, big story um, either our editor or the journalist and within that there will then be you know we couldn't have done this without sort of you know your support and the sort of a link to basically um, uh, ask people to give money and that's quite controversial so I've had feedback that that feels inappropriate you know if you're celebrating a story that we shouldn't be asking you for money but I think we should so <laughs> <laughs> okay all right just one last one or I'll be in trouble <laughs> Uh, thanks. Just a quick question on um, how have you responded to the last year's um, Facebook scandals and just generally the idea of using Facebook as a distribution platform and all the problems that that uh, raises in terms of fake news, etc. Yeah. Um, so that, obviously because of our role in Cambridge Analytica, um, that provoked enormous amounts of internal, I think, debate and discussion. Um, I think editorial at the moment still believe very much that there's a reason to publish within Facebook. Um, and it's to do with um, reaching audiences that you couldn't otherwise reach. And I think they feel that that's still legitimate and that they're, they're comfortable with that. Um, the realities of Facebook referral for us have just become increasingly um, insignificant in a way and so and so and that's something that we've been seeing and 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 you know for a long time and so i don't know if it really troubles us so so our primary reason for using facebook is this this sense of reaching audiences that would be harder to reach and i suspect actually given trends of what's happening with facebook that that's probably going to become more true that there are i mean at least, you know, while, I mean, I don't know if you can break through people's filter bubbles, but at least theoretically, I think it's a good thing to try and do. Um, but I, I think it's, uh, the other thing with us and Facebook is that um, 
uh, we, we were quite early in hacking branding around our stories. And so as a result, we, um, we get quite a lot of recognition within Facebook, I think, along with the BBC, um, which I, th I think hasn't been true for lots of publishers. And so that, I think, has allowed us to some extent to maintain trust and stand for something and maintain brand recognition within it as a platform. Because I do think that sort of sense of everybody looking the same and this impossibility of navigating your way f through sort of traditional visual cues of what's sort of authoritative and what isn't is a real, is a real problem. Um, but I'm, I personally am I'm skeptical about you know, Facebook and commitment to news and the importance of news and the role of news within Facebook, really. So I think we're cautious about it and we continue to sort of, I mean, keep an eye on it, really. Thank you, Anna, so much. Um, of course, Anna will be around in the coffee break if there's any <laughs> questions um, that you have that we haven't had time for now, but thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. I'm Aditi Sango. Did you like the show? Rate us and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And you can also write to me or tweet at me. I'll be back soon with another episode.